From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. After serving 49 years behind bars, political prisoner Sundiata Okoli is released from prison. We speak to a key organizer, attorney Sophia Elijah, who worked for decades for Okoli's release. I asked him recently, I said, well, how are you doing? How are you handling everything? And he looked at me and said, what could be wrong? What, what can you say to that? What could possibly be wrong when you're free after 50 years in a cage? And for young people rallying on Capitol Hill, the urgent issues of school shootings, abortion rights, and the climate catastrophe are all intertwined. All we're asking for is the rights for us to live. And why are they so opposed to that? Aren't they supposed to be protecting us? Making it so we can live the rest of our lives? Why is everything they do up there and over there too, why is everything they do directly opposed to us living? All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, after three high-profile mass shootings in less than three weeks in the United States, including the murder of 19 fourth graders and their two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, the House of Representatives is preparing to vote on a package called the Protecting Our Kids Act which would raise the age requirement for purchasing semi-automatic weapons from 18 to 21 years old, prohibit civilian use of high-capacity magazines and bump stocks, and require background checks for so-called ghost guns. But the proposed law does not include a ban on assault weapons, which may be considered in a separate proposal, as well as a proposal to nationalize red flag laws, which are designed to keep guns away from people who have been determined to be a danger to themselves or to others. During a national address on Thursday, President Biden called for red flag laws and an assault weapons ban. But even as the country reels in horror at the senseless bloodshed, Republican opposition in the Senate is expected to block passage of these gun reforms, though red flag laws may have the best chance of bipartisan support. During an often testy House Judiciary Committee hearing on Thursday, Republicans accused Democrats of trying to quote-unquote disarm Americans. To make his point during a virtual appearance from his home, Florida Republican Representative Greg Stube held up and displayed several of his own high-powered firearms. Representative Lucy McBath, Democrat of Georgia, whose son Jordan was shot and killed in 2012 by a racist vigilante, expressed the frustration of many Americans at the possibility that despite the recent tragedies, nothing will change. An entire generation of children are learning that the adults they look up to cannot or will not protect them. We all agree that the status quo is unacceptable. We all understand that the murder of our children cannot continue. And we have solutions that a majority of American people believe in. They are common sense compromises that will keep American children alive. Solutions to protect our kids, to keep guns out of the hands of those who should not have them. And to stop our neighbors from being slaughtered in our schools, in our churches, and in our supermarkets. We are facing the challenge of our lifetime, and this is the issue of our era. And we must summon the courage to do what is right, the courage to protect our kids, and the 
courage. My God, we have to have the courage to protect America. After headlines, more voices from students and young people who have grown up in an era of school active shooter drills. While some lawmakers may be attempting to curb gun violence at home in the U.S., they are sending even more weapons to Ukraine for use in a dangerously escalating proxy war with Russia. This week, President Biden announced that the U.S. will provide another $700 million in weapons to Ukraine, including a variety of advanced missile launch systems, one of which could reach up to 50 miles. Biden said Ukraine needed to assure that the weapons would not be used to strike into Russia, But arms experts question how solid such assurances could be and how safe these imports would be from Russian attack before they even reach Ukrainian forces. In response to the announcement of these advanced weapons, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that the U.S. is, quote, adding fuel to the fire, end quote, and increasing the risk of a direct conflict between Washington and Moscow. Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin wrote in response, quote, The slippery slope leading to a direct U.S. confrontation with Russia just got a lot steeper, end quote. Biden's announced transfer of these weapons, which would need to be approved by Congress, was followed by news that Russian forces were starting nuclear drills northeast of Moscow on Wednesday. Brian Becker, national coordinator for the Answer Coalition and host of the Socialist Program podcast, said on his program this week that this continued escalation of weaponry by the U.S. is dangerous between two nuclear powers. The danger here, the danger of escalation, is the U.S. is determined to win the war, not bring the war to an end, but determined to win. They're determined to weaken Russia, perhaps change the government in Russia, And Russia is determined not to lose. And so therein lies the logic for escalation in this new danger. And then there's always the issue of the money. As aid to Ukraine will reportedly even cover the salaries of foreign mercenaries and pensions for officials. And this latest aid is on top of $54 billion already allocated. There are more signs that Americans need increasing aid at home. While parents of babies are still scrambling to find infant formula, food pantries from coast to coast tell reporters that they are being deluged by requests for more food assistance, which is becoming more expensive as corporations raise food prices. Also, the Financial Times reported May 30th that utility companies are set to turn off electricity and gas service for millions of Americans. Quoting figures from the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, the article said that more than 20 million U.S. households were behind on utility payments worth $23 billion at the end of February, and that households began to fall behind in the payments during the pandemic, but now moratoriums on cutoffs have expired, as have assistant programs to help pay the bills. And following a Washington Post report, members of Congress are calling for an investigation into a Trump-appointed inspector general at the Social Security Administration, Gail Ennis. She targeted poor, elderly, and disabled people with a total of $11.5 million in fines over seven months 
ending in 2019. As an example, the Post cited the case of Gail Deckman, an elderly woman who kept thousands of dollars in Social Security disability benefits that should have been cut off when her longtime partner died of kidney cancer. She was fined $119,392, three times more than the payment she received by mistake. Then because Deckman didn't have the money to pay the massive fine, the Post noted the Social Security Administration, quote, garnished the entire $704 check she was going to receive every month when she retired from her minimum wage job flipping burgers at the convenience store in her local Rebel gas station, end quote. This so-called civil monetary penalty program was paused in 2021 amid increased scrutiny. And finally, in culture and media, the Biden administration's so-called disinformation board may be paused, but there is still a shadowy group called NewsGuard linked to the Pentagon and State Department that includes ex-NSA and CIA directors on its board. Joe Loria, editor of Consortium News, reports that NewsGuard is accusing consortium of publishing quote-unquote false content on Ukraine because the website reports truthfully about the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine in 2014 and the existence of neo-Nazi influence in the country. NewsGuard bills itself as a news rating project that gives websites either a green badge as a positive rating or a red badge as a negative rating though NewsGuard admits in its own documentation that Consortium News passed all of its fact checks, it still gave Consortium a negative rating. This latest state-linked violation of First Amendment rights follows PayPal freezing the accounts of independent news outlets like Consortium News and Mint Press News because they present information and coverage of the Russia-Ukraine conflict that varies from the talking points of the U.S. State Department. And as we go to broadcast, friends here in the DMV of the campaign to free political prisoner Sundiata Okoli are preparing to have a fundraiser for Okoli, who was released from prison on May 25, 2022, after serving 49 years. That fundraiser will be held on Saturday, June 4th, beginning at 6 p.m. at the home of WEAC Radio, 1918 Martin Luther King Jr. in Southeast D.C. And that's the zip code is 20020 for those of you who need to set your GPS. And those who cannot make it, there's an online fundraiser. I know there are people hearing this show all around the country, all around the world, and Many here will hear it after Saturday. But if you want to support Akoli's family in their effort to care for him, you can give online at actblue.com. That's actblue.com forward slash donate forward slash bring Sundiata Akoli home. And we'll repeat that information and have more information later in the show. And one final bright note in culture and media. A new activist, 18-year-old tennis star Coco Gauff of Florida, is heading to her first Grand Slam final at the French Open. And she wrote, peace, exclamation point, end gun violence on the camera after her semifinal win on Thursday. And then moments later told reporters that she had friends who survived the school murders at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2012, and that she believes it's her duty to use her platform to speak out on issues that concern her so much. 
I think now athletes are more fine with speaking out about stuff like this. I feel like, you know, a lot of times we're put in a box that people always say, oh, sports and politics should stay separate in this. And I'm like, yes, but also at the same time, I'm human first before I'm a tennis player. And if I'm interested in this and certain, I wouldn't even consider gun violence politics. I think that's just, um, just life in general. I don't think that's political at all, but just in general, I think that I'm a human first. So of course I'm going to care about these issues and want to speak about out of these issues. So um, when people make those comments, I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be an athlete forever. There's going to be a time when I retire and, and all this, and I'm still going to be a human. So of course I care about these topics. And yeah, I think if anything, sports gives you the platform to maybe make that message reach more people. Bravo to Coco Golf. And those are our headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. The name of this tune is Baltimore Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. New York got me so upset. Ferguson makes me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Baltimore Goddamn. Florida got me so upset. Chicago makes me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Baltimore. God damn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the violence much longer. Somebody say a prayer. New York got me so upset. Ferguson makes me lose my rest And everybody knows about Baltimore Goddamn This is not a show tune This is real life It's all over the news You may have seen it too Baltimore is more than the wire But the lack of equality makes me wanna holler Mothers losing their children to violence Fear from snitching has everyone silent Lord, have mercy on this land of mine I pray the healing will happen in due time It's not safe here, it may be safe there Fear blinds you, somebody say a prayer Don't tell me, I'll tell you Reparations and atonement are overdue I live in this reality so I know They keep on saying go slow This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Averam Well, on May 28th, members of the youth climate group Fridays for Future D.C. led a protest that began at the Supreme Court and ended in front of a Senate office building, with many of those attending spontaneously speaking about the links between the urgent issues of school shootings, abortion rights, and the climate catastrophe. of any of these big buildings, I'm only really asking for one thing, and that's my right to live the rest of my life. 
That's all I'm asking for. That's what we're all asking for, is our right to live the rest of my life without it being cut off by the barrel of a gun in my first period, or without it being cut off because I don't have access to the medical procedures I need to save my life without it being cut off because of air pollution and water pollution from the emissions of fossil fuels. All we're asking for is the rights for us to live. And why are they so opposed to that? Aren't they supposed to be protecting us? Making it so we can live the rest of our lives? Why is everything they do up there and over there too, why is everything they do directly opposed to us living? Why is that? There are so many people who just don't get it, and it sucks because it's the people who should get it and who should be protecting us, and it's, you know, adults who aren't in the streets, like you, thank you so much for being here, who aren't in the streets, the people who are in the houses of power, they don't get it, right? Like, if you have never cowered in the corner of a classroom, hiding, like, over by the cubbies, but you know that you're in full view of the door, and if a shooter walked in, you would definitely be dead. If you've never been in that situation, you don't get it. If you've never been crying on your parents' bed at like 1 a.m., even though you know you have an exam tomorrow, but you're having a panic attack because you don't know if you're going to have a livable future and your parents can't tell you that it's going to be okay, you don't get it. And the people in power, they don't get it or they'd be fighting for us. about the issue of abortion because this religious right fascist group is trying to ban abortion claiming it violates their religious liberty and their religious freedom but i'm jewish abortion is completely allowed in judaism it is required at times now what times depends on the rabbi but we if you ban legal safe abortion you are banning elements of Jewish law. And if they're going to make a religious argument, well, they're infringing upon my religious freedom. And I should have the freedom to choose. And they are going to do a slippery slope argument. They keep arguing when life begins. When are they, when's it going to stop? They're going to ban birth control. It's absolutely in their plan. And we need to fight back. And we absolutely need to regulate guns better. Why the hell should an 18-year-old buy an AR-15? Why the hell should people be able to have thousands of rounds of ammo? No one needs that. Thank you. It is a dark time for America. The Supreme Court is poised to strike down Roe versus Wade. Black folks are killed in a supermarket, killed on these streets, shot by white supremacists and police. Children are massacred in their schools by assault weapons. As of yesterday, there have been 27 school shootings this year and 214 shootings overall. Shame. 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 And in the meantime, 
our lawmakers have gone on an adjourned 10-day holiday after 48 hours in maybe 20 minutes they passed protection for Supreme Court justices' homes. Where is that sense of urgency? Where is that sense of urgency when it comes to protecting us and when it comes to protecting our children? We are dying, our children are dying, and our planet is dying. The highest court in the land seeks to strip us of our rights, rights our families and ancestors already fought for and won fundamental human rights that should be untouchable. Let us not forget that Alito's draft cites several cases for his argument that abortion rights have no precedent in law. Decisions like gay marriage, interracial marriage, the right to not undergo involuntary surgery, contraceptives, our privacy rights to decide how our children are educated. This government threatens our existence, bodily autonomy, and any hope of a future without violence. This is unacceptable, and we are far past enough is enough. And so, we demand the Senate end the filibuster and pass life-saving gun control legislation, protection for reproductive rights, and policy that puts an end to the destruction of our planet. If we don't get it, if we don't get it, if we don't get it, thank you. My name is Reverend Wendy Hamilton. I am a current congressional candidate right here in D.C. So what I'm out here for today is not just because I feel like I want to lend my voice. I want to get in there. I got some things to say to some people. We need a moral renaissance on Capitol Hill. We need our leaders to remember who sent them there and who they work for. We have lost our sense of, we've lost our minds, but we've also lost our sense of humanity, of compassion. We have put profits over people. We have put personal interests over the prosperity of our, our souls and our lives, and it has to stop, and it has to stop now. You know, the night that they leaked the decision by Alito and them uh, that Roe would be overturned, it was interesting because living right here in D.C., you know, you're able to come down and participate in movements like this, right? So that's a benefit and a blessing of living in D.C., and so I had just gotten home, it was Monday evening, and I, I'd been out all day, I work all day, I work in DC public schools during the day, that's my day job, and we just had to go through a couple of active shooter drills, and I don't appreciate that our children have to incorporate that into their curriculum, but that's a, another point. I came home that night, I looked on Twitter, I opened up social media, saw Roe v. Wade to be overturned was trending, I put my shoes back on. I said, I'm going to the Supreme Court. Nope. And where were the rest of our elected officials that night? Honey, where the hell were our elected officials that That's night? what I want to know because I was down there like, we have to get up. This is a direct assault on American people. We cannot stand at home, and especially here in D.C., because we're not a state. See, I'll talk to you about D.C. statehood for just one moment. And I, I'm running for D.C. I got to talk to you about how this is an extra assault potentially on Washington, D.C. Because what you all don't understand is when that leak was made, there are states 
that are able to codify Roe themselves. Like California that night was like, oh no, no, we will protect women's rights here. Abortion will remain legal here. Illinois, Rhode Island, all these other states that are able to do that said we're going to block this regardless of what the Supreme Court does. D.C. doesn't have that buffer. We don't have a state legislature. If they overturn Roe v. Wade and then a Republican Congress comes in, God forbid, they can outright ban abortion in D.C. like that. And we have no recourse. We need statehood right now. Right now. I find it really sad when children die. I was 15 and joined the March for Our Lives protest that she has her shirt right now, uh, March 24th, 2018. I was 15 and I was in high school. I went to a village high school and there was only one other girl that striked with me. Shout out to you, Libby. And I, I see, you know, there's a, little, there's a little guy here today with his sister. Right there, he's so young. The, the fact that children have to come out here and young adults like myself, because not too long ago I was a high school student. I graduated in 2020, I'm only 19. The fact that we have to come out here is really ridiculous. And my sign that I had in 2018 said, how much is a life worth? They receive millions and millions of dollars and hundreds of hundreds of kids are slaughtered in school. I saw a little boy who honestly looked a lot like that little boy. It kind of uh, makes me tear up a little bit. That watched 20 other kids get murdered. That That's really sickening. And the fact that Mitch McConnell received so much money and then he's tweeting his thoughts and prayers really disgusts me. Are you guys disgusted? Yeah! I find it really shameful and I... I'm proud to be an American, but I'm very, very ashamed of my government and how they are not protecting our children. Thank you, everybody. They are not pro-life. They are not for women. They don't care about children. They don't care about the most vulnerable amongst our society. They're not pro-life. They're pro-birth and they're anti-choice. And just as the First Amendment protects our bodies from the religious beliefs of others, the Second Amendment should not be allowed to perpetuate the slaughter of innocents. Our children, our brothers and sisters of color, and every single citizen of this nation deserves to be protected in their own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Thank you. What is this? Like, I don't even know where I am anymore. Like, I am studying for a future that I don't even know if I'm going to have. My brother's gonna have it. This is disgusting. And I shouldn't, we shouldn't be here. If the people behind us were doing their jobs, we wouldn't have to be here right now. This isn't, like, I take pride in what I'm doing. I take pride in what we're all doing, but we shouldn't be here. This is disgusting. And we can't let this die with the 19 kids and the thousands of kids that have died to gun violence. We will not let this die with them. And I am just really honored to be here right now. And thank you all for taking the time today. I just want to show my brother, who's a very shy kid, that it's possible to hold a mic. It's me for right. Thank you. I don't think people who aren't in school right now understand how pervasive this is. That even when it's not you, you feel it. You feel it all around you. And not just in schools. I have two close friends that through being 
just while while they were children, their fathers were killed by gun violence in this city, in DC. It's it's everywhere in my life. You know, the more think I think about it, the more I see it, and it's not getting better right now. And you know, there's been there's been a lot of rhetoric from conservative politicians saying that it's not about guns; it's about mental health. And to that, I say. It can, it can be about mental health. It can be about welfare. It can be about a million other things, but you're not fixing that either. You're not fixing that either. Yeah. If you think it's about mental health, fix it. It's like, <laughs> you can't just sit there and say that guns aren't the problem just to save them. But that's exactly what's happening. Why are you clinging to them? Why are you clinging to what is killing my friends and my friends' fathers and everyone around me? Right. Right. <laughs> and so I, I guess I just wanted to come up here and say how, how I was feeling as someone who, you know, who has had to have these conversations in my classrooms a million times of what do we do when there's a shooter and, and how do we feel, you know, going into school the next morning after hearing that there was a shooter at another school and, and after hearing that there was a shooter in another school while we're in school and everything just stops for a little bit when everyone hears at the same time because that could have been us. That really, that really could have been us. Thank you. I feel like, like Anna was saying, like, if you're not in school, you just don't get it. Like, I want to explain to adults the, the how much it's in our everyday lives in the classroom. Like, there's a sign in every single classroom that explains what to do if there's a code blue and a code red. And it goes like, code blue is what happens if there's something going on outside. Code red is what happens if there's something going on inside the building. Here's how to lock down. There's these little things on our doors that prevent the door from being locked unless, unless there's a shooter and then we can like slide it out of the way and it'll lock really quickly and you won't have to leave the classroom to like turn the key. Every time, when I would go to the bathroom in school, I would have like a little bit of anxiety because what if something happens while I'm in the bathroom and I'm like trapped outside of the classroom? There's these things over the windows in our classroom so that we can put it down really quickly in case there's a shooter and then we can like be really quiet and it's, insane because we have all these methods and yet so many times we feel like it's still not enough and we still feel like we're in so much danger and now as someone who i left the school system i thought it'd be over but um my dad's a principal so i'm also now constantly thinking about the school system constantly thinking about you know how his students are impacted by covid by all of these things constantly hearing stories of how they are dealing with so much trauma and this he teaches a school that goes up to second grade these little kids are dealing with so much trauma that comes out in so many ways in their school lives that they can't even learn anymore and they have to be like taken out of class and they have to deal with all of this trauma from the pandemic from from this stuff like this um yeah and i was just i know parents feel it in a very unique way things like this but i think that people really need to need to understand what it's like to be in a school right now thanks we'll start with that and let's call it a massacre let's call it what it is I'm sorry if I mis mispronounce anything is in no disrespect to the people. Nevea Alyssa Bravo, age 10. Jackie Pizarres, age 9. McKenna Lee Elrod, age 10. Jose Flores, age 10. Eliana Garcia, 9. Irma Garcia, 48, a teacher. Uzziah. Garcia, 10. Amory Joe Garza, 10. Her family wanted us to let you know 
that she has loved so much and she still had so much life ahead of her. Xavier Lopez, 10. Jace Carmelo Luvianos, 10. Tess Marie Mata, 10. Miranda Gail Mathis, 11. Eva Morales, 44. Alithia Haven Ramirez, 10. Annabelle Rodriguez, 10. Matei Juliana Rodriguez, 10. Alexandria Anaya Rubio, 10. Layla Salazar, 10. Jaila Silguero, 10. Ellie Torres, 10. Rogelio Torres, 10. As well as their names, a high school student who reached out to Fridays for Future wanted us to let you know, thoughts and prayers are not enough. They want actual action from Governor Abbott so more communities don't have to suffer like they did. What Greg Abbott did at their auditorium, he says, is a disgrace. Things need to change and they won't change under Abbott. I can't believe we have to read the names of victims from two shootings today. Two shootings. Babies. These are the victims of the Buffalo Massacre. Roberta Drury, age 32. Margus Morrison, 52. Andre McNeil, 53. Aaron Salter, 55. Geraldine Talley, 62. Celestine Cheney, 65. Hayward Patterson, 67. Catherine Massey, 72. Pearl Young, 72. And Ruth Whitfield, 86. May they go in love. We know they didn't get the chance to say goodbye. We say goodbye to them and let them know that they're here with us today. Thank you all. And those were voices of protesters organized by the youth climate group Fridays for Future gathered on Capitol Hill on May 28th. A special thank you to Ford Fisher and News to Share for his coverage. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Amina Alada Akta. I do dream. I do dream. Amina Alada Akta. I do dream of things beautiful. Amina Alada Akta. I do dream. We want healing. We want justice. We want. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, on May 10th, the New Jersey Supreme Court granted parole to Sundiata Akoli, a former member of the Black Liberation Army convicted in the 1973 shooting death of a New Jersey state trooper, Werner Forster. The court concluded that the parole board 
had not proved that a Coley who was 85 years old and suffers from dementia was likely to commit another crime if released. Fellow Black Liberation Army member Asada Shakur was also wounded in that 1973 incident on the New Jersey Turnpike, and a third member, Zaid Malik Shakur, was also killed. Though Asada Shakur has always maintained her innocence, she was also convicted of murder, but later escaped prison and fled to Cuba, where she still lives. On May 25, 2022, Sundiata Okoli walked out of prison in New Jersey, and the next day was reunited with his family. Now I'm joined by one of the lead organizers fighting for decades to free Okoli, attorney Sophia Elijah. Welcome to On the Ground, Sophia. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is all ours. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, first, there are a lot of listeners who I know would love to have a a description, if you have one, of the moment Akoli was released and to know a little bit about how he's doing physically. Well, I think that the words, and I've thought a lot about this, the words most appropriate to describe that moment are joy-filled. It was the most joy-filled moment I think any of us have ever experienced to see him as a free person after almost five decades. Um, Euphoric. It's surreal. Um, But it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to see him as a free person. He's adjusting. Everything, everything in the world has changed so drastically in the past 50 years. Things like seatbelts. And we're not even getting into the technology. Um, Mm -hmm. But he's taking it slowly and soaking it all in. I guess that's the best way to describe it. I asked him recently, I said, well, how are you doing? How are you handling everything? And he looked at me and said, what could be wrong? What what can you say to that? What could possibly be wrong when you're free after 50 years in a cage? Wow. Wow. Now, I know that moment occurred in Bridgewater, New Jersey, even though that's not the prison where he had been caged for so many decades, but that's where the actual release happened. Yeah, in Bridgeton. Um, Bridgeton. Bridgeton. Oh, Bridgeton. Mm-hmm. Bridgeton, New Jersey. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Now, he, Akoli, is considered a political prisoner by many activists and organizers working for his release. So can you give us some insight into your own personal motivations for working for his release for so many years? And tell us, how should people who may be active today, especially a lot of young people who are active today, who may be unfamiliar with his case, you know, how should they understand his imprisonment and and why his release is so important? Well, let let me take the the question in parts. Mm -hmm. I'll start with like my involvement and why I worked on it for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to law school to defend revolutionaries. I'm a child of the sixties and it was clear to me that if I was going to become a lawyer, there was one reason to become a lawyer and that was to be one in service of our people. And no one was more targeted in the black community by the injustice system of the United States than people who were fighting for our liberation and in specific members of the Black Panther Party and similar organizations. So for me, it was a no-brainer that this is where I was going to focus a lot of my attention and my career. Added to that was the pure injustice of what Sundiata was experiencing. 
First, it was very difficult to just get the parole board to acknowledge that he was eligible to petition for release on parole. And then they continued to deny his release on parole eight times. And every time they denied him, they would set off his next appearance before them for many, many years. One set off was for 20 years, another one was for 15 years, routinely ignoring the fact that he had for many, many years a clean disciplinary record. And I couldn't do less than focus as much of my energy as I possibly could into getting him out of prison. Mm -hmm. So I worked on his case for 37 years. What I would say to young people is, one, never give up. If you believe in right and know that something is right, don't be swayed or distracted away from focusing your energy on achieving what you know needs to be achieved. And sharpen your skill set. You got to be the best of the best in any arena that you walk into because you're going to need that kind of determination and skill in order to win because the deck is not stacked in favor of us and our people. Someone recently in a conversation I had, they gave the figure that more than 150 members of the Black Panther Party, for example, were targeted and murdered by the police or the FBI through the system of COINTELPRO at that time. And this conversation was also in the context of young people, what they have to face right now in terms of fighting police repression, police murder today. In the work that you do, do you see those parallels? I definitely see those parallels. I mean, at the time that the Panther Party was at its height, there was basically a shoot to kill order across the nation. So the 150 that you mentioned are just the 150 that we know about. There are many, many, many members of the party who were just rank and file. You didn't have, you know, a regular like listing of all of the members. So how many of them were killed by the police? And there's no official record of the fact that they were party members and that's why they were targeted. We may never know. Um, but what we do know is that the COINTELPRO effort by the FBI and spearheaded by J. Edgar Hoover was targeted specifically at the Black Panther Party and other similar organizations. Today, you see other revolutionary Black liberation groups also targeted by the government. Um, they will tell us that COINTELPRO no longer exists, but COINTELPRO's children and grandchildren still exist. And the same tactics and more because of the use of all kinds of technology to surveil people and to disrupt their organizing efforts continue today. And I think anybody who doubts that is living in a dream. Right. We know that there was a actual paper or document talking about the FBI, for example, targeting so-called black identity extremists. Exactly. And, and you know, who knows what that means exactly. Uh, if you wanted to have an African name, if you wanted to to have pride in simply being African, of Af Afro-descendant, that that's an extreme identity on your part. So I, w I wanted to, to also ask you about a post 
I saw on your on Facebook. And it said 113 million Americans have an immediate family member who is formerly or currently incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that fact really took me aback. I'm like, we're talking about a third of the population. And so have you seen your work that you've done with around the case of Sundiata Coley applicable to kind of a larger and larger population of people or or have many of the people considered political prisoners? Are they aging out now in terms of the prison population? Well, the prison population across the country is growing older. And by that, I mean, one, we know as a people, people are living longer. We also know that sentencing laws have become more harsh, so people are getting longer sentences. The fact that people are getting longer sentences and people are living longer means that the median age of the prison population is increasing. So I remember when I first started focusing on the issue of people aging in prison, the numbers, I don't remember the exact figure, but within five years, that number had, I think, tripled. And it will continue to go up um, because parole boards aren't letting people out. People who are long-termers, who are generally the people who are convicted of more serious offenses, are getting longer sentences. The parole boards, by and large, do not follow the law, which means they're supposed to evaluate who the person is today and not continue to retry them for whatever um, crime they were convicted of 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years earlier. So those two things combine. Um, and so they're the reality that political prisoners face, and they're the reality of many people who are serving long sentences for serious offenses. They are being denied release on, for parole, even though they are um, stellar candidates for release on parole. All the recidivism research has shown that people who are convicted of serious offenses, that I'll start with people convicted of homicides, are the least likely to recidivate. And people start to decline in the age crime curve around age 40. So by the time somebody gets in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, the recidivism rates are down to like less than 1%. But yet the parole boards are routinely ignoring that research because, you know, New York, not only New York, but all of America is addicted and they're addicted to punishment. So parole boards think that they get to wear the black robes and resentence and repunish people every time someone comes up for them for release on parole. Right. Before we started to speak here on the show, you mentioned that you had mentioned that you had met Leonard Peltier uh, during this time when you were when you also met Sundiata Coley uh, in a federal prison. And, you know, we've talked about his case on the show, and he uh, is also suffering from uh, physical ailments and had been exposed to COVID during this ongoing pandemic. Have you have you seen elderly prisoners get any special dispensation during the pandemic because they are more vulnerable during uh, to this disease, which is still happening, even though a lot of people seem to think that the pandemic is over. Well, I think I have to start in responding to your question that overall medical care in 
state and federal prisons is almost oxymoronic, right? Everybody that goes to prison can attest to medical neglect. Everybody can attest to medical neglect. The smallest amount of money in the Department of Corrections budgets and the BOP budget is spent on medical care. They spent a whole lot on security, very little on medical care, because who's going to advocate for that, that budget to include adequate medical care? So you start with that. Um, then you start with the closed environment. It was, a, as it was said early on in the pandemic, it was a Petri dish for COVID. And we saw COVID ravaged through the prisons on the state and federal level um, early on in the pandemic. Special dispensation for people who are older in prison in the face of the pandemic? No. You yeah. found in some states, Jersey being one of them, New York another, and this happened across in several other states, including California, governors would release people. They release people who were generally closest to being released on parole anyway. So by and large, that didn't include long-termers and people who are older. So not much happened for people who were oldest in the prisons as far as special consideration for release. And I'm sure many of your listeners will remember that a number of people in the federal system were granted temporary release during the pandemic. And then the president wanted to order them all back into the prison. Right. Right. Ridiculous. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, we, I mean, how can I say this? So the Trump administration appointed a lot of judges all around the country and they said that, you know, these people were being just approved left and right. Some of them had never even worked as a judge and they're considered, you know, very right wing judges. There's this idea that uh, there's a whole new crop of judges that are extremely hostile to potential political prisoners, people who are working around black liberation. But when you look historically, and especially in the time that you've been working, it seems like all the judges, whether they were rep- uh, appointed by Democrats or Republicans have been hostile to a prisoner like Sundiata Akoli. They have not been. And it, it just seems to me, I guess what I'm getting to, it just seems to me that there's almost a vendetta against anyone who uh, was you know, fighting the system and uh, working for black liberation, working for the liberation of indigenous people like Leonard Peltier, and that there's just kind of this on just this state uh, vendetta against them, and they want to see them die in prison. Well, I, you know, for many years I was a, a law professor, and I used to tell my students regularly they should study the law and study it well. Sometimes it was an asset and an important tool to have in your toolkit. And sometimes it got in the way. And every case, every argument before a judge, um, you sit um, and hope and pray that the judges will actually follow the law. There's certainly been instances where the court ignored the law. And I used to call it, and I still do, the political prisoner exception to the law. Um, And then every once in a red, black, and green moon, like happened on May 10th 
2022, when three members of the five-member court of the New Jersey Supreme Court followed the law. They had the integrity to do the job that they were assigned to do, which was to apply the law fairly, and they did so, and they ruled in Sundiata's favor. Um, Most of our political prisoners who have been released got released because of court intervention. It's not that often that parole boards will do the right thing for our political prisoners. New York has been somewhat of an exception because quite a bit of advocacy went into um, affecting the composition of the parole board and educating the parole board and the general public about recidivism rates and people aging in prison. Okay, in the time that we have left, I want to remind people uh, about an important event happening on Saturday, June 4th, a fundraiser sponsored by the Sundiata uh, Akoli Freedom Campaign. It's, a, it's and, actually not. It's actually oh. su- supported by some friends of the campaign who are based in D.C. Oh, okay. So yeah. friends of the campaign. Mm-hmm. We A lot of people know Skipper Bailey and they know Kamon Freeman mm-hmm. over at WEAC Radio. And anyway, there there's going to be a, a fundraiser on Saturday, uh, June 4th. And it's at the office or the on the property of WEAC Radio, 1918 Martin Luther King Jr. in Southeast D.C. And that's 20020 for people who need to put the zip code in their GPS. Mm-hmm. And so that is here in Washington, D.C. And I believe it's, is it from 6 to? From so 6 to 11, to, yes. 6 to 11 p.m., right. Mm-hmm. And uh, be music, is, food, and... Um, We'll have T-shirts, and we're hoping to raise money to help Sundiata's family take care of him. Exactly. So that's, again, on a Saturday, uh, June 4th, starting at 6 p.m. at the offices of WEAC Radio here in Washington, D.C., 1918 Martin Luther King Jr., I believe that's Boulevard or Avenue, in Southeast D.C., and... But if people can't make it to that physical location, there is a campaign at actblue.com under Bring Sudiata Acoli Home. So actblue.com forward slash donate forward slash Bring Sudiata Acoli Home. And so if people cannot make it to that physical location, they can give online. And, you know, people are hearing this broadcast, this show all around the country and even all around the world. And they can donate at that online address. That's yes, that would be beautiful. I'm hoping to meet a lot of folks at the event in person on Saturday, and I'm hoping even more that we're able to make a generous and meaningful contribution to Sundiata's family who will be taking care of him for the rest of his life. Exactly. So we have a little breaking news here. Attorney Sophia Elijah is going to be one of the special guests and probably speakers at the fundraiser. So all of those who can make it here in the DMV or nearby, uh, please try to make it to that uh, event on Saturday, June 4th. Okay. So uh, with that, I think that I've run out of time, but I want to thank my guest, attorney Sophia Elijah, uh, one of the 
primary organizers uh, in the campaign, the decades-long campaign to free Sundiata Okoli. Thank you for joining me today, Sophia. Thank you so much, Esther. It's a true pleasure. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms under the title On the Ground with Esther Averam, and on our website, and archive on thegroundshow.org. Thanks again to Fort Fisher for his coverage of Fridays for Future. You can let us know you like the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. And all those pages have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. Or I also link every show on my to my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averum, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I, be like Victor. E-R-E-M, like Mary. The music we played this hour included two tracks by Navasha Dea, Baltimore Goddamn, and I Too Dream of Things Beautiful, featuring Alan Johnson. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.